Do you have a story? And if so, what is your story? I've oftentimes wondered, what is my story? I know Dwayne Lemon. I don't know, some of you may be familiar with him. He was a professional hip-hop dancer and once got into a bar fight with another well-known hip-hop singer. That's not my story. Doug Batchelor, well, he lived in a cave, naked. That's an interesting story. David Ashrick, who I understand was just here, used to have pink hair and was a punk rocker. That's an interesting story. Um, why is my stuff not wanting to work? There we go. Clifford Goldstein used to be used to heckle Christians actually in the street uh, and lived in a kibbutz. That's just a fun word to say. There's no kibbutz in my history. Sebastian Braxton, well, he went to prison. Me, on the other hand, my story is a little different. I look a little bit more like this. Yeah, that's me in the left hand side of the screen holding my Easter basket and that's the family when we came to College Dale. Dad, you don't look any different. Now this is the picture that I found of Happy Valley and usually I point to the screen but I don't think I can successfully point to that one so I'll try and point to this one. I went to an Adventist grade school right about here on the map. After grade school, I walked across the field to this Adventist church where my dad was the pastor. When I was maybe in third or fourth grade, I was taken down this road and back here behind the village market, which was our Adventist health store, food store. We would shop there, and then, of course, we'd get our, our mail here, and this was my first bank. I think I'm still on file there. I don't know. Back here was where I signed up for the Adventist Little League that I was a part of. Then later on, I graduated from eighth grade, again in this church. Somewhere along the line, my brother, older brother and I, we had a lawn business, and so we mowed a lot of grass for Adventist families up here. This is Pearson Drive. Let's see, somewhere about the eighth grade, I also, instead of walking across here, I walked this way to the back of the university and I would clock in here. You're following this, right? You're interested? I would clock in here and then I would go and I would clean Wright Hall, which was not named after me. It's not part of my story. Um, I would clean, I think, Hickman and Hackman. I get those confused. Uh, I cleaned the music building. That was another thing I would do is I would walk and I took piano lessons from an Adventist lady, a dear lady, who gave me... And that, that's where we had our recitals. Anybody here have a recital? That was in this building here. In the second grade, we even went on a field trip to, to Student Park and swam. Okay, I'm getting, this is, let's fast forward a little bit. So then here is College Dale Academy, and this is where we had our uh, icebreaker out here in this field. We played softball here. Uh, what else did we do? I was, I was baptized here. Uh, I went to a dentist that's off the map. He was an Adventist guy. He was over here. Our house was over there. Um, you know, that's my story. And I could put some other interesting pictures up of the family. 
on the screen. But then, at the age of 18, circumstances forced a change in my life. Upon graduation from high school, I had to leave. Beloved, I had to leave home. I had to gather up all my things and move all the way over to here. (laughs) This was traumatic. These halls were sort of new. And I spent the night. The bathroom smelled different. I digress. I met my future spouse here. I took theology here. And so Adventism is completely part of my whole story. There's no kibbutz. There's no running around the cave naked. There's no prison time. And then I married an Adventist girl... We set up an Adventist home. I became an Adventist pastor. But you know, I look back on all the, the friendships, all the friends that I had in grade school and high school and college, and sometimes I go looking where are they? Are they still in the church? Are they still in ministry? Some are, some aren't, some very much are not. And I think, what a shame, because they went through the whole Adventist system. Their parents paid a lot of Adventist money for an Adventist education. But somewhere along the way, they got disgruntled. They said, you know, this isn't really for me. Maybe somewhere along the way, in passing the baton from your parents to you, they said, I'm not sure I'm interested in this baton. I'm not sure this Bible is for me. I'm not sure Adventism is for me. Somewhere along the way, maybe they didn't study it for themselves. Maybe they were just here for the culture or whatever other reason. But as they left this place, or maybe even as they were here at this place, they started to drift further and further away. Their identity, we could say either was lost, or we could say was never fully established as a Seventh-day Adventist. And finally, at whatever age, they said, enough of the charade. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to move on. And so I think of another story, another young man. Let's go ahead and turn, if you brought your Bibles, to Luke Chapter 15, it's a very well-known story. It might say the parable of the lost son. It's really the parable of the lost sons. There's a lot of aspects we could draw from this story, and I'm not going to attempt to pull out everything. It's actually one of three, and I'm sure you're familiar with all three. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and here's the lost son. 
But I love this one especially because it gives us the heart of a father in contrast to the heart of a son that says, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm tired of the restrictions. I'm tired of all the rules and regulations. And dad says this, and dad says that, and I have to do it this way, and on and on and on. Enough! I'm done! And he makes a choice. So let's read our our scripture here in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, when does that usually take place? Essentially, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But since you're not, let's make up a deal. You just go ahead and give me my share now. I mean, housing prices are on the up and up. You'll probably end up better off. But just give me my share now, and we'll part ways. We haven't been getting along. I've been getting tired of you. You're probably tired of me. Let me just take what's mine, and I'll go. And the father could have responded in many ways, one of which would have said, Son, that's not how we do things. I'm sorry. But you're not forced to stay here. If you'd like to go, you can. But what does it say in this parable? It says, So he, the father, divided to them his livelihood. Even right here, we get the hint of the love of a father whose son is more important than his land, than his bank account, than his reputation. And so he says, as you wish, son. Verse 13 says, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. I mean, he had a good time. This was a fat check, and you know what I can do with all of this? And so he went through and got the car he wanted. He got the clothes he wanted. He went where he wanted. He got the girls he wanted. He partied like he wanted. No one was telling him what to do. I'm free! But his freedom is short-lived. It's interesting how the devil still tries to sow that same lie. Is that what God told you? No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Come to my side. Your eyes will be open. You'll be able to see and discern. You'll become like one of the gods. Yeah, but God said, God said, look at me. And so he pulls us along on this path of seemingly being free, being able to do what thou wilt. And what always begins as seemingly freedom ends in bondage. That's why the loving father gives those directives. But you know what? Dad never did know what he was talking about. I know what's better anyway. So we do it like Frank Sinatra. I'll do it my way. What do you know anyway? You have a 
life, Dad. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to live large. And he did. But when he had spent all, verse 14, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. This is about the lowest of the low. Verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he's down there in the slop, he's there with the pigs, he's got his hand in the feet, he's thinking, this is starting to look pretty good. And somehow in the midst of that, I don't know if it was day after day, but at some point he says, what am I doing? Have I stooped to this? I thought life was bad back with dad, but you know, come to think of it, life was pretty good. We ate well, had a roof over my head. I really had pretty good friends. Dad at least treated me with respect. This guy doesn't treat me with much respect at all. And he finally has this aha moment. And the verse says, And he came to himself. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. And he formulates a plan in his mind. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him. You ever been in trouble? I mean, with your parents? And you try and figure out, how am I going to get out of this one? How am I going to tell him I wrecked the car? What am I going to tell them? Because I got home two hours late. And they said, if you're ever home late again. And we come up with these plans and these ideas and these speeches. And we rehearse them. And we go over them over and over and over. And we rehearse the speech in our mind. And then we say, no, that's a stupid speech. We throw that away and we come up with another one. And then the time comes. Well, here's his plan. Here's his speech. He says, I know what I'll say to him. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'll just humble myself. I'm going to put it all out there. I'm going to own it. I messed up towards you, towards God. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's the first part. The second part, make me like one of your hired servants. There's a big difference between a son and a servant. You see, the son sleeps in the big house. The son eats with dad. The son has an inheritance. The son has a voice at the table. The son has security in the relationship to the father. But an employee, no, he sleeps in the servant's quarters. Every morning he wakes up and he packs his own lunch. 
He's simply paid as an employee for the service he provides. And the only voice that he has is when he's asked, and he's rarely, if ever, asked. And he's valued based on, well, performance. And everybody appreciates a good employee because they do good things for me, the employer. You're efficient. You're faster than anybody we've ever had. You're gifted. You're talented. And what we really don't want to tell you is you're making me a lot of money, so I'm going to keep you on. We say it in code language. You're very valuable to us and the organization. But let's be clear. If your performance tanks, how shall I put this? You're done. We're not picking up any of your options. We have no need for you. We're going a different direction. You get the picture. Two-week notice. That's the employee. It's based on what you do, not on who you are. So that's his speech, two parts. He's got it down. He thinks he's ready. He knows the way. He had to turn in the sports car, so it's going to take a little longer. He looks a little different than when he left. Life's been hard on him. Drugs have been hard on him. But he's making his way back to his father in humility. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off. There's something neat about being able to see a long ways. You know, being in the woods or hemmed in, but when you finally get the view, when you get some perspective, when you can see a long ways off, And he knows he's been down this road many times before. He knows as he rounds this corner, he'll see the house. Is this a bad idea? What's Dad going to say? How's he going to receive me? Maybe I should just turn around. Maybe he does turn around two, three, four times. I don't know. The story doesn't say that. But at some point he says, no, this is my only option. And I know Dad's at least fair, and he'll allow me to be a hired hand, a hireling. And so he goes, and when he's still a great way off, his dad sees him. There. Way in that far-off field, there's something. Honey, come, come, look, look, look. Does that look like... See how, see the gate, see how he walks. I think that's our son. And he starts to run. Now, old men in the Bible don't run. Old men today in 2021 don't run. But he's running. In his robe, he's got that thing hiked up. And he doesn't care. He's just running to his boy. 
what is this? Is everything okay? And his father saw him and had compassion. I love that word, compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is no reservation in terms of, hey, son, fancy seeing you here. What do you want? No, he's running. He's falling on his neck. He's squeezing him tight. He's saying, oh, my son, my son, my son, you're back, you're back. And he's just like going with his dad, like, dad, dad, I got to tell you something. No, you're back. I'm so excited. No, dad, dad, just wait, just wait. got this speech. And so we see the first part. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's part one. You remember part two? Make me like one of your hired servants. He doesn't even get the words out of his mouth. That's what's going to come next. But the father said to his servants, as if he hadn't even said anything, bring out the best robe and put it on my boy. Put a ring on his hand. Reinstate him as a son, the signet ring. And put sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to be merry. This is a beautiful picture of our Heavenly Father. Sadly, it's not the picture many of us have. This is the picture we have of our Heavenly Father. You get yourself figured out, straightened out, cleaned up, and then we'll talk, boy. That's not the picture we have. This is a picture of a loving, compassionate Father. Does dad possibly not know? Has he not heard? Well, verse 30 tells us very plainly. And we're not going to get into the other son. He has a similar, if not the same, problem. But he talks about harlots and all the ways that he spent the money. No, dad knows. But you're not getting it. This is my boy. This is my son. Let's kill the fatted calf. You know, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, many animals were sacrificed. All of those animals were symbols of Jesus Christ, who would come to be sacrificed for our sins. Verse 30, as I already mentioned, this says, this son of yours who came devoured your livelihood with harlots and you killed the fatted calf for him. Friends, don't miss it. In this story, Jesus is willing to die so that the one joined to the harlot, the one that has been on the joint, the one that has gambled and cheated and has been stealing can be justified. This is the love of the Father. This is grace, exponential grace. And it's nothing short of amazing. 
I mean, the fatted calf, this can feed 200 people. I imagine he invites the entire town. Why? Because his son, who is dead, he's now alive. He's home. Education 294 says the divine teacher bears with the erring through all their perversity. His love does not grow cold. His efforts to win them do not cease. Friends, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. He just loves you. That's why he created dogs. They don't care what you did yesterday or five minutes. They're just happy to see you. <laughs> they want to lick you to death. Friends, God loves you. It doesn't matter. He still loves you. With outstretched arms, he waits to welcome again and again the erring, the rebellious, and even the apostate, those that have turned their back on religion, turned their back on God, said, get out of my life. With outstretched arms, he waits. How long does he wait? How long did this father wait? Does the waiting expire? Doesn't sound like it to me. Steps to Christ, 52, page 52. Even this parable, tender and touching as it is, comes short of expressing the infinite compassion of the heavenly Father. It comes short. It's not sufficient. It's limited. You think God loves you this much? No, he loves you a thousand times, a thousand times more this much. If that even made sense. This is undeserved, unmerited grace, unmerited favor. But so often, too often, we're like the prodigal. We feel we have to earn our way back into our Father's favor. Just let me be a hireling, and over time, maybe I'll earn your trust. But friends, good works are not the root of our salvation. Good works are merely the fruit of salvation. We don't obey his commandments to be saved. We obey his commandments because we are saved. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. If not, don't bother. And sometimes we get uncomfortable with, with this grace picture and we think, well, is this just cheap grace? I can do whatever I want. I can go party with the harlots and, and gamble and all these other things. And I'm still going to be accepted and I'm going to be brought right into the heavenly kingdom. There's a story that I very much resonate with. It goes back to the slave trade in this country, which is a dark part of our country's history, but I'm thankful that our country righted itself. Do we have a ways to go? I suppose you could make that argument. And as long as there are people that are not converted in this world, 
Racism will always exist, unfortunately. The true thing that we need to get past any of that is conversion, true conversion. But it was back in that era, and there was a muscular black man on the auction block, and the bidding began. He was young, he was in shape, he looked like he could do a lot of work. But under his breath, he said, I will not work. And the bidding started. Who will give $5, $5, $7, $7, $10? Give me $10. I got 12 over here, 12, okay, 15, 15. And it started going higher and higher and higher. And he kept saying under his breath, I will not work. And people were competing and competing. And finally, one man sold to the man in the back. I will not work. Quietly came over. Said, Hank, you can come with me. My wagon's just over here. You don't understand. I'm not going to work. You just get in the wagon. That's fine. They're driving along through the dirt roads back to his place. And he says, Hank, I think you're going to like it where I'm taking you. I'm not going to work. We've made a lot of plans to try and make it really nice. I'm not going to work. Pulls in. It's a nice little cabin there. There's curtains on the window. He never had curtains on the window. There's a bed for him that looks really soft. It's up off the ground. And then there's a nice rug there for his feet on those cold mornings. There's a little kitchen in the side. I said, Hank, we've pulled this together for you. I hope you like it. I hope it's sufficient. He says, it's very nice. But I'm not going to work. And finally, he says, Hank, there's something I need to tell you. I didn't buy you so you could work. I bought you to set you free. Hank didn't know what to say, except, Master, I'll work for you for the rest of my life. Sometimes we get one in front of the other and it messes up the whole thing. But when we realize the love and compassion of the Father that's running towards us with arms outstretched, What can I do? How can I say thank you enough? Words are not enough. Flowers are not enough. A thank you card is not enough. I have to do something in response to what Jesus has done for me. Over the course of the last 14 years, I've had the privilege to learn what it means to be a father. And if time lasts, it won't be long before many of you will be fathers. And some here, I'm sure, are already fathers, and you know what I'm talking about. 
For those that have yet to be a father, it can be a little hard to describe, but I'll try. For those that have experienced it, you know just what I mean when I say some of these things. But first, there is the excitement that comes in whatever way your wife chooses to tell you, Honey, yes, dear? Well, I'm pregnant. No! You are? How did that happen? Well, honey... And then for nine months, there's the waiting, there's the anticipation. First, it's trying to get your mind wrapped around this idea, I'm going to be a father. Am I a father already? I don't know. There's another person inside of my wife. Is this going to be a boy? Is this going to be a girl? What if it's a girl? Oh, boy, dresses and all kinds. What if it's a boy? Oh, we're going to go fishing. Oh, this is exciting. When do we find out? When's the appointment? When can we go? And then, especially for those first-time moms, I don't know who you'll end up marrying. For my wife, we got to be prepared. we got to go to classes. Honey, these classes cost money. Dear, we're going to classes. Yes, dear. We go to classes where we learn all about all the process of how this works. There's a room that has to be set up, and it has to be painted a certain color, and the pillows have to be just so-so. And then you wait with eager anticipation. I kind of feel, yes? No, I think I just, you know, feel better. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. But then there's that time when she says, honey, I, I think maybe this is it. And you race to the hospital. A little bit nervous, a little bit excited, wondering, tomorrow at this time, maybe sooner, hopefully not later. And then... You experience the joy and the love that you instantly feel when after all of this goes on and the baby is safely out and you're all holding your breath and then you hear the cry of your little girl. And all of about one second, she's got you wrapped right there. It's a spiritual moment. For me, I felt all kinds of emotions. And then I'm holding this little being, this little helpless creature. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And you hold them close and you cradle them. And I just love how those newborns, they like to grip your finger. Have you ever had that experience? Let me tell you, when they're yours, it's completely different. When kids aren't yours and they pee and poop and spit up, this is disgusting. When they're yours, this is precious. They spit up. Isn't it cute? Look at this little poopy. This is my little girl's poopy. Sorry, Lauren. <laughs> she happens to be here. <laughs> and with each of our children, as they were born, you start to think, what are they going to be? What are they going to grow up to be? What plan does God have for their life? 
Maybe they'll be a teacher. Maybe they'll be a nurse. Maybe they'll be a businessman or businesswoman. Maybe they'll go into the medical field. What kind of talents will they have or possess? Will they be musical? And you have all these hopes and dreams for your child. But for me, the bottom line was simply that the Lord would use this child for God's glory. And so as a parent, you watch them grow and mature, and you celebrate every milestone. The first smile. Did, did, did you see? They, they just smiled. I know. I think that was a smile. Did, did, where's, the, where's the phone? Let's get a picture of it. There it was. Send it out to everybody. They smiled. Don't worry. You'll be crazy someday, too. <laughs> then there's that first name they call you. Well, they're going to call me such and such. Grandparents do the same thing. They're going to call me this. And whatever they end up calling them, that's it. Then they crawl, then they take their first steps, they walk, they run, they shoot a basket, they hit a ball, they ride a trike, a bike, they mow the grass, they water ski, they drive a car, and the list goes on. And as a parent, you're there to celebrate, to root them on and say, good for you, we're so proud of you, we're here for you. There's a picture of our family. But if you're a math major and you count, oh, we're going too fast here. Uh Uh-oh, is it going to automatically advance? This might be problematic. I think it will. Uh, Maybe if I went back since it won't. Anyway, if you're a math major, you count, there's one, two, three, four. Two boys, two girls. We thought, this is it. This is perfect. We're going to put a little bow on top. We're done. But at six months, we started to see that our youngest, James, wasn't hitting those milestones anymore. He still wasn't sitting up. He wasn't crawling. He wasn't pulling up at the coffee table. And then there was the day that we got word. I still remember the phone call from my wife. She says, they just told me that he has a rare condition called Alexander disease, but to not go online and look it up. So what do you do? You go straight to Google and you look it up. And it says this is a fatal condition. Depending on what age they are, when they get it, they can live anywhere from two years of age to sometimes in their teens. What? Can this be? Is there any treatment? I mean, is this just a done deal? And then there was this whole time where this isn't a diagnosis, but this is what we think that it is. Eventually, we got the confirmed diagnosis. Yes, it's Alexander disease. And as a father and as a mother, as parents, the pain, the hurt, the heartache that our child would not develop, would not grow, would not mature as we had hoped and envisioned as parents. For our first three, all of these milestones were so quick. And you say as parents, my, my, they grow up so quickly, don't they? I wish we could just freeze them in a bottle and they not grow. They're in such a cute phase or whatever the expression is. But for James, 
That was his reality. And it was agonizing to watch. As friends and children his age, people born year two, three, behind him would come and surpass him very quickly within the first year, and off and running they go. For any father, as the provider of the family, you want to do everything in your grasp to fix it. Go to any doctor, pay any amount, drive any distance, try any therapy or diet method or means that might make a difference for your child. That could somehow alleviate in any way the effects of the disease. Here's some more pictures of James. There we're camping. There we're, uh, I don't know what we're doing. I think this might be Easter too. Um, I think where I grabbed these from, they're on an automatic scroll, so I don't know how to stop the automatic scroll. But James had such a winsome personality. And as we went through this process, I couldn't help but think early on of another father and the divine miracle of forming his children from dust. And instantly, this heavenly father falls headlong over his creation. I mean, everything else is good. This is very good. And he adores them and he loves them and he has great hopes and dreams for them, what they're going to do who they're going to become. Jeremiah 31.3 speaks of some of this. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 29.11 speaks of God's plans for you and for me. Plans not to harm us, but to give us a hope and a future. God had plans too. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God rejoices over you with gladness, and he will quiet you with his love how he will rejoice over you with singing. I read that verse, I just think about a tender father, a tender mother, rejoicing over their child with songs and lullabies. You learn this little thing, pat, 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 that whole little dance, and you might do that for hours in the night, and you might sing little songs until finally you get enough burps that you need or something happens that needs to happen, and they finally fall asleep. You're quieting your child with your love. Now here in this verse, God does the same. Because he loves us. Oh, I did the wrong thing. This is really going to mess with me here. Sorry. But then... With our Heavenly Father, the awful disease of sin enters the picture and it stunts and retards the growth of His children. It mars the plans God has for their lives. It prevents them from hitting milestones. And over time, time causes them to lose skill sets that they worked so hard to gain. And I believe it pained the heart of the Father 
as he is so deeply hurt and grieves for his children. And I believe we see from our loving Heavenly Father, we see God again doing everything, everything, everything to deliver us, His children, from the disease of sin. These are my kids. I have to do something. I have to do everything, anything. He gives the truth in His Word. He sends prophets again and again with the warnings and directives. He gives the law as a divine protection from the ravaging effects of the disease. But again and again, the remedies are pushed aside, belittled, mocked, ridiculed. Until finally the love of the Father compels him to send his only begotten Son. To take on the full effects of this disease in his own body. To make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. And what pain the Father must have felt, the gut-wrenching pain when the human race rejects, demeans, ridicules, and blasphemes His Son to the point that they nail Him to a tree. Sorry about this. Projection. I just wanted you to see a few pictures of James. But maybe not. James died on James 8 of this year. We knew that was going to be a hard time because as parents you celebrate all the milestones. And then when they start going backwards... How long is it going to be? How's he going to go? Can we keep him from being in pain? About a year ago, he started really plummeting fast. In fact, some of those pictures that were up there, that was November 1. On November 2, I went to Lowe's and I picked out lumber for his pine box that I was going to build. A lady at the register happened to go to my church. She said, Pastor, what are you building today? What's the project? Is that a pine box for my son? She said, I'm so sorry. I said, it's okay. I actually wanted you to be the one checking me out today. Went home, put it all together. As he continued to decline, 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 got to the last week it seemed <clears throat> we called the family if you want to see James but he's not really himself anymore he's on a lot of pain meds it's hard to get a smile but he's comfortable and then there was that last night we thought this is going to be the night sure enough it was kids said we don't want to go up and go to sleep we want to stay here with you we said, well, I don't know how they're exactly going to be right there at the end. And I don't want you to stay up all night. Why don't you all just go to sleep here in the living room, and we'll wake you up as soon as he passes. Can we hold him one more time? Yeah, you can. So that's what we did. 
and he died peacefully in his mother's arms. And very soon after, the whole family was woken up and it was about morning anyway. We had the pine box there in the corner. We had already made it up just like it was his bed, and I had a picture of that, but maybe that would have been too much anyway. Tucked him in just like we tucked him in for years. Knee pillow between his knees. He always had to have a matchbox car in both hands. His blankie had to be nearby. He was always on his left side. And then we put him in our minivan. We drove to a place that's only a few hours away from here. It's kind of in between where we live and here in Andrews, North Carolina. Drove up the gravel drive. And on that day, June 8, we placed him in the ground. We dug the hole ourselves. We're kind of hick that way. But it's really cathartic. The whole family's there. The kids are helping, taking out your anger on the roots or whatever until you get a, a sizable hole and the, the friends and the family gathered. All of our siblings and both of our parents were able to be there. My sister came up from Florida. Elizabeth's sister came down from Michigan. We have a string of cousins. I don't know how many. Was it like 20-some cousins? Any of you who have lost someone close, you know that after that happens, it can be challenging to go out in public. In fact, it can be even nauseating. We received a thoughtful note from someone in our church after it happened. They compared it to a bomb going off, but nobody seems to recognize that anything has happened. And you just want to scream wherever you are, don't you get it? Don't you know what just happened? My son, my son is gone. How can you do business as usual? And then I think back again to how they forced Jesus to carry the cross and took him outside of the town to be crucified with criminals at the human garbage dump as the rest of the world went on with their petty lives of selfish gain, pleasure, and self-promotion. And I imagine God up in heaven wanting to cry out, Don't you get it? This is not just another day. This is the day of all days. Don't you see what's happening? This is my son. My son whom I love so dearly that I'm giving up for you. Why? Because I love you so much. I'm willing to do everything, everything, everything to save and redeem you. Because you're my child. And I don't want you to suffer the disease of sin anymore. A cure has been provided. His name is Jesus. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. And it's available to all. 
Second Peter chapter 3 is the heart cry, I believe, as a, of a father as he says, I don't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I imagine even now, God is crying out. As we live, I feel, on the knife edge of eternity, as the, as the world is crumbling all around us, as we see society in a moral freefall, as we see hate and division on every side, I see God crying out to us today saying, don't you get it? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what I have given for you? Please don't reject my son who died that you might live. I imagine many here would be quick to say, hey, easy, easy. I received Jesus, to which I would say, praise the Lord. But my other question to you would be, are you growing? Are you developing? Are you maturing in his grace? Or are you missing spiritual milestones that are heartbreaking for your Heavenly Father to watch? Are you learning to trust him fully and completely? Because having Jesus is not merely a transaction in which I have a ticket for eternity. Yes, he promises us eternal life, but he has promised us so much more. He's promised us better things now, today. John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life, and that they might have it how? More abundantly. John 15, 10, 11, keep my commandments and abide in my love, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Friends, there are benefits today. Luke eleven thirteen. 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Friends, our Heavenly Father longs to give good gifts, the best gifts to His kids, to give us the Holy Spirit, poured out beyond measure, beyond our capacity to receive it. But we shrug our shoulders and we say, eh, I'm good. I got this. I'm okay. To grow, to develop, to mature in his grace, his joy, his peace, his assurance, his love, day by day is perhaps God's greatest gift, both now and for eternity. And in small part, that's been the gift of James to Elizabeth and I and our children. Because in this experience... As difficult as it has been and still is, we have grown. As a family, each of us have grown individually. Our, perce our perception of life is different. We've learned to trust God more completely. And in so doing, he gives us his peace, his joy, his assurance, his strength. 
And I wish it didn't have to be this way, but through this experience, life has become deeper, richer, more meaningful, more purposeful. It's not just business as usual. It's also less trite, less fake, less plastic. I know my retarded son never was a pastor, teacher, businessman, medical professional. He never was a leader in his local church. He didn't fulfill any of the dreams that I had for him early on. But I believe in his short little life. His impact on us and how we relate to others, how we do ministry, how I prepare sermons through how he taught us unconditional love. The impact of a smile. Girls, let me tell you, he was a flirt. He would catch your eyes, and then he would pretend to look away, but he wouldn't, and people would melt. And the cuter you were, the more he'd lock his eyes on. He very well may have had a bigger impact on the world than I could have ever dreamed for. When it's all said and done, we're told a child shall lead them. That's been the case for us. Ministry of Healing 479 says, God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. That's 479, Ministry of Healing. That can be hard to imagine, especially in the challenging situations of life. But I have to believe that's true. That someday God will show us the larger purpose of James. That we couldn't see. And we'll praise him for it. And we'll say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your ways are higher than mine. I never saw it that way. I had no idea of the ripple effect. And what that purpose might be, I don't fully know. Can't wait to find out. I wonder, though, at times, if it could have been something as simple and basic as the salvation of his father. Salvation of his mother. Salvation of his sisters or his brother. What if the situation that was so challenging for him and for all of us was the answer to my own prayers when I pray, Lord, help us all to be in the kingdom when you come. Help our circle to be unbroken. Help our kids to choose you. And what if this is God's answer? And he says, okay, are you really sure you want to pray that prayer? Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It's going to take you down a road that you might not choose for yourself if you couldn't see the big picture. But if that's the case, the day will come when I'll say, Lord, thank you. Our little eight-year-old boy, James, his sacrifice was worth it. And for the father whose son left the comforts and joys of heaven, 
to come down to this dark and evil planet and unselfishly minister, encourage, heal, and teach life-changing truths. But in response was rejected, spit upon, nailed naked to a tree. But if it meant salvation for some boy, some girl, some man, some woman, that because of that overwhelmingly challenging darkness, others could live in the light for eternity. As our Heavenly Father that can see the end from the beginning, I think He looked down through time, eternity, and said, it is worth it. It's worth it. And friends, I never hid from James. I never waited for him to get his act together and conquer the disease by himself. But instead, as his father and mother, we did everything, everything, everything we could. And our Heavenly Father is not hiding from us. He is not waiting for us to get our act together, to conquer the disease of sin by ourselves. Let's face it, we can't. But rather, our Heavenly Father is doing everything, everything, everything to save us. What does Jesus say to the Laodicean church? He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Friends, our Heavenly Father is not hiding He's at the door knocking like a gentleman. He's at the far end of the field looking to see, is his son coming? Is his daughter coming? And in that moment, he breaks into a run. Longing for entrance into our hearts. Longing to give us the best of what life has to offer. And folks, when you open the door and let him in, when you give your heart, your life, your hopes, your dreams to Jesus, I mean, let's be real, does that mean that hardships and challenges just disappear? No. But you'll be given strength from on high to meet those challenges. It doesn't mean you'll understand every outcome. But you will be given peace that God holds the final outcome. It doesn't mean everything will go according to your plans. But you will realize that God's plans and purposes will prevail. No, God's not hiding from us. He's knocking on our heart's doors. He's looking, he's looking for his sons and daughters come home, that he may embrace us and hold us and claim us again as his son, his daughter, for eternity. And somehow we've listened to the ideas of the devil that have warped this picture of who God is. But friends, God is a God of love that we cannot fathom, we cannot understand. But he loves me. How is it that he loves me? 
I mean, he knows all my stuff, all my garbage, all my baggage, all my poor choices. He knows my thoughts. But he loves me. God may run for you. He'll run down that field for you. He'll embrace you. But will he do it for me? He will. A thousand times over, he will. All we got to do is come home. And so I want to make a call. I know that this is an Adventist university, and all of you are like perfect little darling children. I get it. Young adults, excuse me. But maybe there's somebody that needs to come home. And this isn't about me. If nobody comes forward, that's fine. But I want to give the opportunity for somebody that maybe says, the Holy Spirit's been working on my heart. And I've been wanting to come back and the devil has been trying to shame me and guilt me and say I'm not good enough. I haven't earned my way back into God's favor. I haven't been doing devotions long enough, praying long enough. I'm not good enough. Forget it. But maybe in the last however long the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart and you say, I want to come home. I want to say yes to this incredible invitation, not to be a hireling, but to be a son and a daughter of the king, to be reinstated. If that's your desire, I want to ask you to come forward. Who cares what anybody here thinks? Who's going to shame you for coming forward for Jesus Christ? And so if somebody needs to slip out on the side, let them slip out. But I want to encourage you, now is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. So if anybody needs to, come down here and meet me at the front, and we're going to pray. There's another group I want to invite, too. This is the group that, uh, I mean, pastor, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I've been baptized. I've made all the commitments. I've said everything I need to say. I've, I've done everything. I'm paying my tithe, whatever. But maybe you've just stopped growing. You've stopped developing. You've stopped hitting spiritual milestones. Your spiritual life has just plateaued. And maybe by coming forward, you're saying, Lord, I don't want to be Laodicean. I don't want to just be lukewarm. I want to continue to grow. I want to make a commitment to you to be the Lord of my life. I want to commit to spending time in your word, time in prayer. Lord, I just have to respond to this amazing grace that you've offered that somehow I've forgotten about. Lately, it's just been grace. It's been taking advantage of grace. But this is amazing grace. And I want my life to be a response to that. And then the third group, 
If you just want to commit your, your, your life to the Lord tonight, right where you are, you say, coming forward is not my cup of tea, but God knows my heart. But for whatever reason, you just want to say, Lord, I want to stand for you tonight. I want to say, Lord, I don't know what's going on in 2021. There's a lot of craziness. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of uncertainty. But there is one thing in this universe that I can be certain, and that is you are a God. You are a heavenly Father that loves me so much. Not because of what I've done, in spite of what I've done. You love me anyway. And you just want to stand to recommit your life to the Lord. I invite you to do that now before we pray. And if you're up here front, down front kneeling, you can keep kneeling. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how do we adequately respond to a God of such grace? A God that loves us so much in spite of ourselves. A God that was so excited at our creation. A God that had big plans for us and then sin got in the way. But you didn't turn your back on us. You didn't say, oh, that's a shame. And you sent one prophet after another prophet after another prophet to lead your people, to guide your people, to show what redemption looked like to model it through your sanctuary. You did all these things until finally you couldn't take it any longer and you had to come in the flesh to take upon our sin and to show the waiting world and watching universe how big is the love of this God. And in your love, in your grace, in your sacrifice, in your shed blood for us, for me. We're promised eternal life. And it's not just for then. We're promised a better life in the now. If we ask for the Holy Spirit, you promise to give it, to give us the fruits of the Spirit. And each one of those is a wonderful, good thing. It's a blessing for us. So Lord, forgive us for walking away from those blessings, for turning our back on those blessings, for being too busy for those blessings, for somehow placing something, anything else in front of you. Well, I'll just get my education figured out, and then I'll get back to God. Well, I'll just find my spouse, and then I'll get back to God. Well, I'll just get established in my business, and then I'll get back to God. All of these excuses that we make. Lord, today, tonight, we want to come back to God. We want to come home. We want to feel your embrace. 
that just swallows us. We want to feel your hug that is so tight that it won't let us go. And we want that embrace to change us. To make us different. To make us surrendered. To give us peace. To give us joy again. To give us hope again. To know and feel your love again. And then, Lord, we don't want to just keep it to ourselves. But we want to share it. In whatever way you show us, whatever way you lead us, whatever doors you open. How could we know about such an amazing thing and keep it to ourselves? Lord, you know why each person has come forward tonight. You know their hearts. You know their background. You know where they've come from. You know the longing desire. You know why they came forward. Lord, give them each exactly what they need that only you can give. Give us your peace, your assurance, your love, your sense of purpose and hope, and yes, eternal life, so we can live with you forever. Again, not because of what we've done, not because we're earning your favor, but because you gave up everything and we don't want it to go to waste. So we claim it. We claim it for ourselves tonight. And the most loving, compassionate, father, friend, cheerleader that we could ever imagine. Lord, in this life we will have trouble. But give us good courage because you have overcome the world. Thank you. And in your arms we can overcome too. So thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you for these commitments. Seal them by your grace. We pray in the most loving name of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.